Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm uh, very much enjoying this day so far. I'm going to just give you uh, a, a, a single case study from the past um, for you to think about, really. I'm not going to try and draw out big conclusions. I think we've had some very interesting frameworks of thinking this morning already. Uh, what I'm talking about um, will centre around this individual, Joseph Chamberlain, a man who has a very diverse reputation. Um, uh, but this is in his early career when he is uh, just still the um, CEO of the biggest screw manufacturing company in the West Midlands, a bit like um, making microchips for the world at that time. This is a very, very big business, um, very important um, uh, thing in the, in the West Midlands economy. Uh, he's the third generation scion of this family. Um, he's been trained in London on the financial markets in his youth and has come back to Birmingham. And of course, in his later career, he'll go on to become an extremely divisive uh, politician championing uh, uh, protectionism fa famously in the Edwardian period. He also gets very interested in uh, the National Education League, a liberal uh, organization in the 1860s, promoting the idea of elementary education for the working poor of England, uh, somewhat shockingly in the richest nation in the world. Uh, there were still very large proportions of the working classes who had no access to primary education. And he becomes the mayor of Birmingham, uh, 1873 to 5. Very interesting, very unusual move for a, a colossal big businessman to take on this kind of dirty work in politics. Uh, he is part of a very important network of liberal families in Birmingham, and he's part of uh, an important move in the Liberal Party to um, create a ward system of, this is the participation part if you like, what happens in 1867 is that um, the uh, Disraeli's famous leap in the dark, he enfranchises a proportion of the working classes and uh, the Liberal Party in Birmingham is uh, a pioneer in realising that if the working classes have got a vote we need to get out and organise that vote and they create a ward system of um, organization. So he's part, although I'm going to talk a lot about Chamberlain, this is not a great man history, he's part of a really complex network that becomes invigorated in the late 60s and 70s in uh, Birmingham and it um, achieves uh, really I think an awful lot in the field of um, environmental change in fact. What, what happens is that this is the, the context, the demographic context, the blue line is uh, life expectancy in England and Wales between 1716 on the left and 1896 on the right. And as you can see, the uh, life expectancy of the nation was uh, rising in the 18th century and then, very intriguingly, goes completely flat across most of the 19th century from the 1820s through to the 1870s, the period in which Britain became the most powerful in economy in the world. The domestic population is ceasing for some reason to get the benefit of all that fantastic economic growth. Its life expectancy is no longer improving, although in the 1870s there, there is a resumption of the 18th century pattern of continuous rise in life expectancy. The yellow line is helping us to understand why that is happening. The yellow line is, uh, is showing you what happens to the expectation of life in, Bur in Britain's biggest provincial cities. And as you can see, the, 1820, the 1830s and 40s are a disastrous period for the big cities. Life expectancy falls below 30. 
and even below 25 in the central parishes of places like Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham. And it stays below that point, in the, it, it stays low in the 50s and 60s. It doesn't begin to rise again in the 70s. So something is going disastrously wrong for the health of uh, the working population in England in this period. There is an awful lot of disruption. The economy is growing massively. What we get when economies grow very fast is when we look back with the hindsight of history, we tend to emphasize all the good things that happened in the long run, the rising per capita income, the increased goods. But in the immediate short term, when economic change happens very rapidly, you get enormous disruption of society, multi-dimensional disruption of society, of the environment, of its culture, its ideology, its administrative systems, and particularly political disruption. And political disruption is crucial because a society that is politically disruptive, disrupted is losing its power to respond to the disruption itself. If it's, if, if, if it's politics is in flux and in dynamism and is under, under stress. The kind of conditions that are famous, um, Gustav Dare's um, illustrations of the over intense overcrowding that was occurring in cities uh, still even in the 1860s and 70s. Um, uh, famous drawings from the 1840s and 50s of London's water, the interesting living uh, organisms that uh, were found under the microscope in the water supply uh, of, of the population. And this letter of complaint about the quality of the Calder River, um, the intriguing thing being that the letter is written in Calder water. Uh, and the person writing it is saying uh, to the water board that he's complaining about, if only you could smell this letter as I write it to you. Um, <laughs> So there's enormous environmental disruption focused in these cities. They're, they are heavily overcrowded, their water supplies are in danger, and um, there are enormous problems. This is going on in the context of a larger polity whose ideology is laissez-faire. This is the, the first that the kind of Adam Smith wrote in the 1770s, and the classical political economists followed up. And the, the strong belief is that government should step out of economy, out of the society. And a big um, uh, sign of this was what happens with the poor law, an ancient institution dating back to Elizabeth I, um, uh, providing social security, if you like, to the population on quite a generous level, rising to 2% of national income by the early 19th century is famously slashed in 1834. The new poor law cuts um, uh, the nation's social security system in half as a percentage of national in income and, of course, creates the famous workhouses of Dickens' novels, a system that's deliberately deterrent. So at the same time in the 1830s and 40s that these urban environments are becoming so heavily compromised and the, uh, the uh, living conditions are becoming so dreadful, the central government, because of its ideology, is pulling out of support for the poor and is insisting that they should um, uh, go to the workhouse if necessary or work for the lowest wages. It's not the case that, the, that British society is unaware of what is happening. Um, an intriguing individual, William Farr, in the General Register Office, a new institution of 1836, collecting the nation's birth, death and marriage data, 
is also um, in charge with running the census operation from 1841 and FAR realizes that with these two sources of data, the census and the vital registration, he can create rigorous measures of life expectancy and death rates in the nation. And this is an example of him using a graphic image to try and get across to the nation what's going on. This shows you, the, uh, this is a survival table for uh, Surrey, rural Surrey at the top, Liverpool in the middle, and the metropolis London at the, in the bottom. And it's showing the proportion of the population dead. Um, the black proportion is the pro proportion dead at age five on the left-hand side and age 100 on the right-hand side. And you can see the point of the enormous black whale of Liverpool pointing out that in Liverpool, uh, people are dying at such a rate that half of them are dead by their fifth birthday. Whereas in Surrey, only you know, 100 miles away in the same country, uh, still 80% of, of people are alive at age five. This was, this was very effective stuff because it was getting across to the English polity, to the pub public opinion, that the conditions in Liverpool are abnormal. This is, this is, this is not, it's not, it, people don't have to die at this rate. There are other parts of the country in which this is not happening. There is no natural law going on here. It's about the way in which Liverpool uh, and other big cities are conducting their affairs and the conditions of life. This is published in the early 1840s and as part of the um, uh, propaganda that the public health um, uh, doctors are, are proposing, there is a Royal Commission on the Health of Towns which produces a very famous Public Health Act, the 1848 Public Health Act, uh, the first time a nation has, uh, has passed such an act generally. But the Public Health Act is still born, uh, and this is the Punch magazine's take on the Public Health Act. Lord Morpeth, who moved it through Parliament, an aristocrat, is there handing out um, great papers of uh, state to the pigs around him who Punch magazine suggests are the aldermen of the, the town councils of Britain. So what, what Punch is saying is it's all very well for the central government to, to pass a fine act of legislation, but the towns and cities and the people running them are not interested. They don't see anything in them for this. They're interested in the dirt around them, which is where they can grub up what they want. Um, they're not going to just follow the instructions of the central state. What happens over the next 30 years, as you can see from that, that data I gave you about um, the life expectancy of the nation and indeed of Britain's cities, the 1848 Public Health Act has a little but not very much impact on the health of the populations. What is happening is that from the 18, late 1840s onwards, there is a new set of ideas bubbling up, particularly in Birmingham as it happens, George Dawson in particular, uh, these are religious men, clerics working amongst the poor who are becoming disenchanted with the idea of saving souls on an individual basis, and they start to write and create something called the civic gospel, the idea that religion needs to take charge of city organization to have any impact at all upon poverty and the lives of the poor. So this is a quote from Robert Dale, at the top, you can see he's saying, I sometimes think that municipalities can do more for the people than Parliament. And then in the middle, he's saying he's invoking Christ as a, a, a source for this kind of civic activism. Uh, and at the bottom, he's saying medicine and not the gospel only is necessary to cure the sick. 
Municipal action, not the gospel only, is necessary to improve the homes of the poor. So this is a man of religion saying that. I'll skip, I'm running out of time. This is Joseph Chamberlain basically saying the same things. Joseph Chamberlain goes to his pulpit, he hears this stuff and he starts taking on this argument. The crucial thing he's got on his side is that in 1867, the Second Reform Act, and in 1869, the Municipal Reform Act, changes the voting capacities in Britain's cities. Chamberlain starts to have a working class electorate to play with, and the working class electorate does not pay rates. It is a non-rate paying electorate. And what Chamberlain realises is this means you can go in front of on the hustings and argue for spending on the city of Birmingham. And the people out there with the votes, it's, their first thought is no longer, this is going to cost me. Um, they are interested in the argument. Along with his ward organisation, he's able to get the vote out. This is the local cartoons of the intensity of the um, debates in Birmingham that were going on around Ch Chamberlain's spending programme, cast as a fairy godmother, is this guy for real? Um, but as a result, he is able to um, get into power and to push forward a, a movement which gets called in the, in the textbooks gas and water socialism. He works out that you can take out big loans from, in his case, from the city of London, and very soon afterwards the Treasury realises that it wants to facilitate this as a general procedure. Large loans with which to buy up local monopoly services, gas and water and so on, run them for profit still, although cutting their prices to the customers and using the profit for the city's health purposes to build expensive sewerage systems, clean water systems and all kinds of other activities. This is the front page of uh, the Medical Officer of Health report for the city of Liverpool. 25 years after Chamberlain has pushed through his new reforms, and it's just every single item in this, this is the index at the beginning of the report in another city copying Birmingham. Every item in the index implies staff. This is, these, are, these are people employed in Liverpool to clean up the environment, to inspect and monitor everything. This is enormous amounts of money being spent by the city of Liverpool on its environment, on monitoring it and staffing it. That's in addition to the capital expenditure of building sewage systems and so on. Expenditure of, um, uh, on GN, uh, if you just look at the right-hand column, the expenditure as a percentage of GNP of the whole economy spent by local government goes up to 6% of the entire total by 1905, the one and only time in this country's history when local government has spent more than central government. At a time, 1905, when the, 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 the arms race between the big empires is, is occurring, so it's not as if the central government has trivial expenditure on its hands, but on the back of civic gospel and gas and water socialism, municipalities are becoming highly active with their working class voters uh, willing them on. That, of course, means that from the 1870s, the cities, the bottom line is the one you've seen before, just made a little clearer. The dreadful life expectancy in those cities in the mid-19th century from the 1870s onwards begins to climb relentlessly upwards on the back of this massive investment that is being um, produced in these big cities. Uh, if you want to read more, um, this book, Health and Wealth, has a few chapters in it which um, go into greater detail uh, than I've been able to cover today. One crucial final point I'd want to get across is that one of the things that Chamberlain manages to do, we, we talked about words this morning and their importance, 
He takes the key term of his opponent's economy. All through the middle of the 19th century, people have been getting elected, those aldermen, that punch magazine. They've been getting elected by a narrow shopocracy, a, vote, a voting base of shopkeepers on the promise of economy. What economy means is vote for me and I won't spend anything in this city. Your rates will stay low. And what Chamberlain is able to do as a big businessman in Birmingham is to stand up in front of his uh, voters and say, I know what true economy is. People have been practicing false economy all these decades. We must spend to make our workers more productive, our workforces more uh, capable, our population more healthy. That is true economy. And, and that was a very powerful rhetorical move to deny his opponents their key term and to turn it on its head. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much.